Hey guys, welcome to the Rewired Life Podcast. Back this week with the one and only Coach Courtney. What's up? And I uh, got some more questions in uh, this week. Not going to get to all of them because I'm going to save some for another episode. Uh, but got a bunch in that six of them all kind of had a similar theme and I thought it'd make a really fun episode. Uh, the six that we're going to cover today are essentially all fitness and wellness related topics that basically ask the question, is this good or is this bad? Uh, which is a, a unique way to approach things in the fitness world. Cause the truth is nothing in the fitness world is good or bad. It's not evil, uh, or necessarily good. Uh, they're not people. They don't have souls. They don't make decisions. <laughs> they're just things. So, uh, today's topic is going to talk about that. Uh, I kind of want to get this out there that we'll, we'll pick six different topics that were sent in from some awesome people over Instagram. Uh, for example, the first one is icing, like is icing good or bad? And I kind of want to help show the approach of, uh, you're asking the wrong question of stop trying to think of everything in the fitness world as good or bad. Think of it as like, okay, so what is this actually helpful for? What's this actually harmful for? Like, what's its use? What's its purpose? That's a much, 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 much healthier way to look at stuff like that. Um, because the truth is nothing in the fitness or physiology world is necessarily good or bad uh, within reason. You know, like I'm not sure that there's a whole lot that black tar heroin helps with. <laughs> but, but being able to look at stuff like there's a purpose for sugar and like there's a purpose for caffeine and there's a purpose for rest and there's a purpose for work and there's a like everything has a purpose and it doesn't make it good or bad especially in the fitness world it's more of okay what's this actually helpful for or is there a time and place where this is bad is there a time and place where this is helpful um i think that's a much better approach and it, it will help make light uh i think for whatever reason we're also in a culture right now that wants to cancel everything and that shouldn't really carry into the fitness world um the goal isn't to just cancel everything in the fitness world. The goal should be as we look at stuff like, hey, is there a purpose for this? What's the thought behind it? Is there a way that this could be helpful at a certain time? Is there a way that this could be harmful at other times? Like that, that's a much healthier approach. And you'll probably have a lot more fun in your fitness journey if you think of it that way. So that's kind of the premise for today. Um, Courtney's going to drop the topic. Uh, I'm going to share some knowledge. If she's got some comments, she's going to chime in as well. And we'll just kind of roll through six. I think this will be a fairly fast but super practical episode. So three, two, one, go. All right. So the first one, training masks. So like Ooh. those elevation masks. Training masks. I like it. Uh, so if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, um, these have been out for probably a couple decades now. Um, they're, they're masks that you wear over your face that restrict breathing. And the original intent was to mimic training at altitude. Okay, now to give some backstory for this, when these originally came out, um, the thought behind them was like, anybody that trains at altitude is automatically substantially fitter. <laughs> it's literally why the uh, Olympic Training Center is in Colorado Springs. Um, it's why the rugby tournament is in Aspen. It's why so many uh, different Olympic teams train at elevation. And there's some mixed research on that. We could talk about that another day as what training at elevation actually does, what we thought it used to do, what we've learned, what we still don't know. There's a lot. Um, but so that we don't get off topic, the intent of the mass originally was to mimic that. So uh, 
early on, uh, particularly kind of in the early CrossFit days, uh, you'd see a lot of games athletes before we even really called them games athletes. They, they train with them pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, we've had members at our gym ask, uh, and here's, here's my two cents. There's, we've learned more about them in the last several years. Uh, there is quite a bit of research on this. I remember studying them in college, which would have been like 2005. Uh, and the, my professor helping us understand of like, we don't know enough yet to say for certain, uh, there could be some risks. There could be some benefits. Here's the thought behind why people are using them though, which is a pretty helpful way to view them originally. So I hold them very loosely. I don't think they're necessarily good or bad, but is there something they could actually be helpful with? Here's one thing that, um, there's research on this. That's actually really cool. Something that they do is they don't allow you to get as much air. So they, they restrict how much oxygen you can pull in. They don't necessarily restrict how much oxygen you can push out, okay, or, or other um, chemicals, you know, like carbon dioxide. They don't, they re- do clearly restrict how much you can pull in. They don't necessarily restrict how much you can push out. So something that they've done indirectly that we do have research on that's actually pretty beneficial to certain people is they can teach a lot of people how to actually breathe with their diaphragm. So the, the big balloon-shaped uh, sweet spot in your breathing and in your conditioning that a lot of people have a hard time learning how to use and tap into. It's kind of at the belly uh, of your lungs. It kind of sits um, like a balloon and it fills up with air when you use it correctly. And it's, it's a great, it's a great helpful tool, especially if you're an endurance athlete to be able to breathe through your diaphragm is substantially more efficient. It will keep your heart rate down. It will keep you less toxic. You won't have as much of a lactate threshold. Uh, and if you are a strength athlete, you probably have heard a really good coach at some point tell you like you need to learn how to brace and bracing starts with the diaphragm, uh, where you hold your breath correctly. So let me give you an example for anybody listening to this. Take a really big breath. Three, two, one, go. If your lungs just filled up, that's not your diaphragm in a way you can tell if your shoulders just got taller when you took that big breath, you took a breath with your lungs in your nose and your mouth, but you didn't actually breathe into your diaphragm. Now, take a very intentional, thoughtful, slow, five-second in-breath and then hold it deep in your belly. Now, exhale it out. That's much more in your diaphragm. That's, it's using the deepest part of your breathing uh, where it's, you're massively efficient if you can learn how to use that. Something that training masks have done is teach people how to use that more kind of because they have to. Because if you're wearing a training mask and or you're training at elevation and or you're using like like an O2 trainer that came out recently that it's basically a little thing you put in your mouth and it looks like a mouth guard, but it has gauges on it that limit how much oxygen you can pull in. It's not necessarily that those apparatuses themselves give you a better VO2 max, which is a fancy word for meaning like you have better lungs and better conditioning and you operate at less stress when you do cardio. But what it's actually doing is teaching you how to use your diaphragm. That we know for sure. If you use correctly and use at the right times, it probably teaches you how to use your diaphragm better, which in turn gets you better at cardio. So like if you're using a mask like that, with the intent of like, I want to learn how to breathe better on cardio and I, I want to run competitive 10 Ks or I want to not die as much in conditioning workouts and you use it for that and it ends up indirectly teaching you how to use your diaphragm. Well, and shit, dude, that's awesome. Like 
that wasn't really the intent of that apparatus, but it accomplished the goal that you were trying to get anyways. So it's a roundabout way of getting the benefit. Um, outside of that, like I know some firefighters in our gym that have used it before because they want to get used to having a mask on their face under stress. And the only place you'd really get to mimic that is being in an actual fire, which is, that's more game day. You don't just want to like practice on game day. So like, I know guys like Taylor's used them in the past of like, I'm going to do this stair run and I'm going to be on oxygen. And I do a lot of really, he's at a really busy firehouse. that gets a lot of calls he's used in the past. And it, it, same thing. Like it teaches you how to use your diaphragm better and teaches you how to stay calm while you're breathing really hard. If it does that, that's, that's really helpful, especially for someone like them, you know, that's, that's life or death. They need to be good at that. So there you go. There's some helpful information, uh, on training mass. All right. Yeah. I've never used this before. Um, ice, icing injuries. Ooh, good one. Icing in general. Um, we've learned a lot in throughout the years about icing. Uh, this is one that I, there are a few people, uh, and some really smart ones out there that hold really firm stances on icing is good. And there's some really smart people that hold stances that icing is bad, but the smartest people that I like to listen to hold that stance very loosely and open handed with, okay, but yeah, like what, when should we ice or what should we, what should we think about of why we're icing? What's the benefit we're getting from it? Is there times where it's not helpful? So my very open handed answer is this, um, it's got to be very intentional. So here's some stuff that we do know for sure is uh, if you're icing because you have inflammation, you have bigger issues than just inflammation. Yeah. So like, like if you're like, you carry a lot of hype, you know, you're hypertensive, uh, you tend to carry a lot of stress, you've got, you always have sore muscles, you have an accelerated heart rate, like you, you've got, you have other issues going on if you have a lot of hypertension. Um, ice will help particularly the symptom of the fact that you carry a lot of hypertension, um, and your, you know, your muscles are just tight and tense and you don't relax well. Uh, ice can help some of those symptoms, but the fact is like, you probably got much bigger issues going on. Like your diet sucks or you have way too much salt or you're super dehydrated or your sleep is garbage or you're like, there's probably a much bigger root going on there. Um, so, so I know some people try to use it for that and I, it, that's probably more of a symptom treater. Um, it won't actually help what they're trying to get it to help. If someone has an injury, should they use ice? Um, this one, th- th- there's a little bit of research on each side. Let me just kind of give some food for thought. A really common one, like when I think of like childhood sports, right? Is like you roll your anchor, you roll your ankle like playing soccer, right? And immediately, like in my day, you know, you're playing basketball on the court, you roll your ankle and like the coach immediately rice, rest, ice, compression, (laughs) elevation. And I had, uh, he was an exercise scientist. Um, he was a strength and conditioning coach for colleges. He was a soccer coach for college too. He had a master's. He, He knew his stuff about physiology. He finally got our team to buy into this of like, when you roll that ankle, which happens, like, especially if you play oh, yeah. soccer, basketball, whatever, like it just, it's current, Definitely you know, it. it's pretty frequent. Um, he would not let us stop moving. And that has drastically changed my opinion on icing because our recovery time was like a quarter of what it used yeah. to be. So part of the reason for that is this, like when your body has an injury, like you roll an ankle. Now, if you snapped your ankle, 
Like it's broken and there's bones sticking out. Yeah. Go to the freaking hospital. Like <laughs> ice or not, go to the hospital. Like you need, you need immediate medical attention. Like, but if you, if you roll an ankle and it's like, it's bad enough for you're like, okay, that freaking hurts. Like I, I shouldn't go run on this right now. Like what should I go do? My advice would be this, keep it moving mm-hmm. without causing any more pain. Now, if it's broken, bulging, or excessively bruised immediately, like you need to get to the hospital. Something's probably wrong. You need to go get an x-ray. Make sure you didn't actually like snap something. Mm-hmm. But like if you just, you, you stretch some ligaments beyond the point yeah, that they really would like to be stretched, yeah. you rolled it. Ankles do that. It's okay. You're an athlete. Keep it moving. If someone was to do that at the gym, like they're, you know, they're running and they like all oh, just a quick ankle roll. Like I would go tell them to go get on the bike for like 20 minutes and keep some blood in it. And when you get off, like, and you got to go to work and you're going to be stuck at a desk, like keep writing the alphabet with your ankle. Bingo. Yeah. Like listen to music and like beat, like keep your foot moving to the beat. When you get home, don't go sit down and elevate it and com- use compression and ice. Know that like keep, if you can walking on it, keep it moving. One of the reasons for that is when your body's really smart, when it recognizes that there's pain, there are triggers that go off from your parasympathetic nervous system that will immediately rush blood to that area. And if you let it sit and then you try and restrict it by adding ice to it, and then you elevate it by restricting blood flow to that area, it will swell up. It will become super stiff. It will be immobile and it will take significantly longer to recover in the long run. If the goal is to get you back to walking around pain-free and eventually get you back to performance, the best thing we do is whatever we can possibly do to minimize recovery time because you want to get back to playing. So in that situation, I would say, man, if you can hold off on ice. Like when I rolled mine last year. Yeah. This injury in particular, I just kept walking on it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Your recovery was very fast. fast. Now, um, huge fan of ice baths. That's a very different ball game. Cold showers even too. Cold showers, tons of research. Um, Now, they don't, they might not be doing what people actually think they're doing. Like, so if you take, say you take a normal shower and at the end you're going to try and stand in the water under the shower head as cold as it can possibly go. Some of the theory there is like, well, it's lowering your core temperature. Dude, you're not like... You don't change that fast. Like your your body's like pretty efficient at keeping you at homeostasis as far as temperature. Like one minute under cold water in a shower is probably not actually low in your core temperature. But there is research that shows like, well, your mitochondria production at the cellular level is actually sped up because of that drastic temperature change. And then when you come back to normal temperature and you rush new blood in, that there's increased cell production and that would help recovery and inflammation. That like, yeah, there's quite a bit of research that shows that. There's also experience from that of just like, do you feel better when you do that? Yeah. And does that actually allow you to train better? Because if it does that, then like, dude, do it. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you not? Yeah. I was in a really bad car accident about two months ago. I take ice baths several times a week now. Literally for that reason of like my body went through an epic amount of like stress, right? So like at the muscular level, all my muscles were tight. Like I, I couldn't even move my neck for like neck. days. Yeah. So ice for me was like, I'm going to use this to try and get inflammation down and hopefully allow me to start training more frequently. Um, Do you find that you have more energy when oh you, God, yeah, yeah. Because that's what so, I've heard us feedback too. A, a big one for me is I know that I'm 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 a tight individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I didn't do this for work, I'd be so tight all yeah. the time. And I know that about me, and that's like that's genetic. That's like ninety eight percent genetic. Is like I'm my my parents have that, so I have that. 
Um, and hopefully my kids don't. Hopefully they get Katie. She's a lot more limber. But I know that for me, I am so – I get such a good nervous system recovery from that of like I feel more calm. I feel like I feel much better the next day. Um, I don't feel nearly as tight. I'm a lot looser in the next day's training session. But I'll also throw this in there. I don't, I can't tell you that I've ever looked at research that would, you know, confirm this, but using a couple principles I know about exercise science, this won't be true. If you're like, if you're a bodybuilder or you're someone who's trying to put on muscular size, like you're trying to make muscles bigger Mm -hmm. and or denser, um, you probably should not ice immediately post-workout because you're killing your window of gains of recovery of like, you don't want to mess with those. You don't want to go change your, change your temperature like crazy. Is that mean you probably shouldn't get in the sauna either if you're trying to put on muscle immediately post workout? I I would say probably not. Would be that would be my, my gut. I don't know the answer for sure. I'd have to do more research, but I do know that icing. If you're someone who's trying to put on muscle, don't go ice immediately post workout. You need to wait like several hours uh, if you can, or even like the next day. Then go do it. And does it actually help your muscles grow more? No, not at all. But. Does it get you recovered better and allow you to train harder the next day? Dude, if it's doing that, then it's indirectly helping you do what you were thinking it was doing originally, even though it was doing it in a different way, if that makes sense. So there's some thoughts on ice. If you roll your ankle, keep moving. If you're trying to get jacked, don't go ice yourself immediately post-workout. Big fan of ice baths. Um, big fan of changing your temperature around for recovery. I think it's a really helpful, simple, and honestly, very inexpensive tool that yeah. goes a long ways. So there you go. Um, all right. Eating entirely or almost entirely one macro. So focusing in on just protein, just carbs, just fat. It's a great question. So like, is there, is it good or bad or is there risk or blah, blah, blah to only eating carbohydrates for the you know majority of your diet or entirety of your diet or only eating protein or only eating fat? I'll kind of come out of the gate and say this. Um, the body's natural design, especially when it comes to nutrition you're either adapting or optimizing at all times. Mm-hmm. So like your body's trying to adapt to the workout you're putting it through or it's trying to adapt to the diet that you're on or it's trying to adapt to your sleep schedule or to your sleep schedule or excuse me. You're in a sweet spot where like it's optimizing that of like oh yeah, I perfectly fueled for this workout and like it's optimizing the macronutrients and calorie amount that I just gave it and it's like making me perform perfectly in this workout. Of like, it's optimizing, like it's working or Mm -hmm. your sleep is finally on a really good schedule and it's consistent and it's working and your body's actually restoring itself and your REM cycles on point. Like it's optimizing, like it's kind of working towards it or working away from it. That's how the body works. So to the person that asked this question, I think it's a great question. Some things to keep in mind would be this. Um, We got to stop. We got to stop using the like good versus bad cancel culture type of mentality when we look at nutrition. Yes. Yeah. So I'll be the first person to admit when someone asks like, so is there like an, is there an optimal diet? And my, my answers for you probably, but it might be totally different for the person next to you or for the person you like, you got to think like we're so complex. Yeah. What's your age? What's your muscle type or fight? What's your training goal? What's your stimulus look like? What's your sleep? What's your stress? What like, what do you respond well to? What's your goal? What's your, like, you got to look at all of those factors, which are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. It's really different when like, it's like, 
my my dad's a cattle rancher. My dad and brother run a very successful ranch in the Midwest together. Like it's so much easier to work with cattle. You tell them what to eat and when to eat. You tell them when to drink water. You literally control every aspect of their diet. They're and like and they're happy as all get out. Like their goals get fat. And they have an amazing life. Like that's what cows want to do. They want to get fat. They want to sleep. They want poop. They want to like yeah. th- we know so much more about cattle nutrition than we do humans for that reason. We can control every variable of their diet. Almost like with like 90 plus percent accuracy. We can pretty much control everything about theirs. You can't with humans. You could put our entire gym on the exact same diet. And the truth is it would work really well for a bunch of people. It would not work well for a bunch of people. And then there's the others like, I can't do that. Well, and it's an interesting topic that's like, I guess I've seen it more in social media in that aspect. If we all ate the same diet, we would all look a little different. Totally true. And like you versus you and I even. Totally like true. Female, not a female. Like yeah. I, I always think it's pretty interesting. Big time. Which is, I, we say all that to come, I think, help give the, the perspective on this question of like, you got you to gotta start looking at like, what works for you. What works for you. And at the same time, recognize like, okay, but there's some other people and this works for them, but it didn't work for me. So what does that say about me and them? And it doesn't make it like good or bad. It's more right. of like, okay, so I'm learning like this. I do well with this. I don't do well with this. In general, let me kind of throw this out there. Um, there are cultures that survive almost entirely on one macronutrient. And they did that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And you're not them. Because the person listening to this is probably an American that's got a really diverse history of like, well, I'm 10%, you know, English, I'm 10% Asian, I'm 10%. I'm like, dude, you're so complex. If you were, think about it, if you grew up in, um, if you grew up in Tonga and you are the like 200th generation of your Tongan family to live there. Like you've been there for thousands and thousands of years and like you've never left the Island. You've always eaten the same thing. And Tongans have a almost entirely fat diet. They have like, think about like they have coconuts. They have certain like fruits and veggies that are really high in fat. They have pigs. They have like Uh fish. They have like, it's, it's super fat intensive And it's really cool to study that. That doesn't mean that when – this is my problem. When people look at that and they say, see, they don't have heart disease and all they do is eat fat. So I should only eat fat. And I'm like, no, no, no. Dude, you're not them. Like that's not your heritage, your biology. You don't have the same lifestyle. You don't have the same training. You don't have like – you're very different. So at the same time, you could look at certain Southeastern Asian cultures that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years – Basically only ate carbs. It was like rice and leaves. Yeah. And it and they didn't they're okay. But like that doesn't mean you should only go eat carbs. Yeah. The you one risk I would throw out there, that this this one's kind of from research, uh there's PubMed articles on this, you could look to back up. There are some risks to only eating protein with zero carbs and fats. The body doesn't do well with that. Yeah. So there's there's a really cool study on um this group of people that only ate rabbits. For a really long time. Why rabbits? Why would they choose I, rabbits? I can't, I'm trying to remember the study if they were like, if they were trapped somewhere and they had to like survive on rabbits or if it was by choice. I can't remember. I feel like it was something where they were trapped. I'll have to pull up the because it's super interesting, but um, I'm sure I could Google it. But anyways, 
Rabbits are like almost entirely protein. They have like nothing else because they're not fat. Like they're like, they're lean, right? And they're very, very low fat content. Um, And there's some real risks to a lot of different types of people if they only eat protein. Like your, your, your brain doesn't do well without fat. Um, And a lot of your energy systems, unless they adapt to fat, they don't do well without carbs. Mm -hmm. And if you are only eating protein and you have no fat and you have no carbs, there's a lot of complications that can come from that. So I would say this to the person that's, that's thinking about this. Well, how do I start to decide what macros do really well for me and what don't is dude, you, you gotta, you gotta go in with the mindset of I'm going to slowly and patiently learn what works well for my body in this season. And I'm going to stick to it long enough to actually get an idea. Mm -hmm. And I'm also going to go listen to some trusted sources. I'm going to listen to some smart people. I'm not going to listen to just some guy on Instagram trying to sell me something. Um, I'm going to talk to some coaches. I might talk to my doctor. I might talk to someone that's like, they actually seem like they're a good friend and they know a lot about nutrition. Maybe I'll talk to them. Like I pull from some sources and I would say at the same time, throw up a red flag anytime you hear someone or see someone say something about nutrition, particularly macros, where it seems like they stuck a flag in the ground and they're never willing to change. I'd say you got you to go a little bit loose. I know people, very, very awesome people, even some at this gym, that have an absurdly high uh, fat ratio in their diet of full-blown keto or full-blown carnivore or whatever. And like, it works so well for them. And I know people that if they tried that, they'd feel awful. And I know people that have a super high carb dominant diet that actually do really well and stay lean. Like Courtney eats a lot more (laughs) carbs than than most athletes do. Um, And some people that eat an absurd amount of protein and their farts really stink, but it works for them. (laughs) Like, like there's, you just, you got to understand like you're a unique individual biological experiment that's been created over a long history of time and you've got DNA and the culture that you live in and the goals that you have and how you respond and what's worked well for you might not work well. It doesn't mean that there's not some good truths that we can put out there to like as good guidelines, but it means like, dude, there's a lot of room for people to find what works for them that might not necessarily be what works for the person right next to them. Yeah. So that's a, a long-winded answer just to say if anyone has questions on that topic, you can answer you can chime back in. Um, but stop stop looking at carbs and fat and protein as enemies. They're actually better friends than you think. Well and another thing too is call your local dietitian. I feel like a lot of people actually resort to like fats or you know like supplements or whatever. Yeah. Actually go talk to a dietitian. Um, or if you know someone again, totally well based in that, I guess, range of, yep. of knowledge, go to someone who actually knows what they're talking about yes. and then learn from them. Yep. But, um, we can kind of juxtapose these and yeah. the sense of four and five caffeine, good or bad melatonin, good or bad. Ooh, the opposites. Yeah. yeah. So caffeine and melatonin. I'll, I'll be kind of brief on this one. Um, we've Americanized caffeine. And what I mean by that is I love America. I'm a patriot. I'm proud to be part of this country. But there's a culture that tends to happen in America of like, well, if something's good, then we should just go like, you know, pedal to the metal floor and just take it as much as we possibly can. 
Um, and that's not true in a lot of cultures and it tends to get us into trouble. Uh, caffeine, caffeine can be absolutely great. We take it in ways that are very new when you look at the entirety of history of caffeine. Caffeine originally has been, it's been used for longer than we even have history on. Um, it, in general, caffeine was used very, very minimally and consistently throughout culture where like, uh, there's studies on like Incans using it, uh, for work and they would use, you know, they could get natural sources of caffeine from like cacao or from different leaves or whatever. Um, they even honestly did the same thing with cocaine leaves, which is crazy to think about, but like really, really minimal amounts almost throughout the day. That's very different than how we drink caffeine. Yes. This, you know, vente mocha frappa bullshit that people order from Starbucks that has like 200 grams of sugar and <laughs> 6,000 milligrams of caffeine and they drink the entire thing in five minutes. That's probably bad. Like, like legitimately, like that's probably, that's probably not healthy. So when you think, when you think about caffeine, think, uh, number one, here's a really good rule that no one's going to like, and I'm going to offend all the coffee drinkers in the room. Number one. If you're drinking caffeine purely because you're tired, it's probably going to have negative effects. That's fair. Caffeine does really, really well when you're not tired. And I know, I know it sounds weird, but like think of like someone who's actually getting good sleep, has mm-hmm. good fuel, eats you know at the right times, eats the right macros, like their training's on point, their recovery's on, like they feel great. And caffeine does so much better for that individual when they take it even in small amounts, but on days where they actually feel good and it's not because they're tired and dragging ass. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's not, that's not how Americans <laughs> tend to take it, yeah. right? We're like, I got five hours of sleep last night. I'm stressed out of my freaking mind and I want a 32 ounce coffee now. That tends to have a lot of negative side yeah. effects. Um, another one to think about is there's a lot of studies that show that caffeine and really high amounts of sugar is a bad combo. Well, that's, the, that's the big piece that I think a lot of people, especially that drink the fruity coffees, which yes. I am so guilty of, but having that combination and just crashing and burning. Yes. Caffeine and sugar is probably a good cocktail for you to crash. And that's not a great idea. And then people are like, well, I'm tired. I'll take more caffeine. I'm like, no, dude. It's yeah. like, you, you know... You were drunk and well, okay, I'm sobering up. I'm going to drink more. No, like that's, that's not what it's, it's not the point, but, uh, that's another one of, uh, be careful the amounts you're taking, be careful taking it with an epic amount of sugar. Um, I would say to people that take caffeine, it's not wrong, good, bad, evil. You just, you need to understand why you're taking it and understand that there are some risks. Um, if you have high blood pressure or you're hypertensive, uh, be careful, you know, it, it'll, it'll heighten that. And that's probably not a great idea. If you're taking it because you're freaking exhausted, that can lead to really bad issues. Um, I would say this though, uh, there is not a blanket number, although the FDA says there is, they say it's usually 200 milligrams a day. Um, there's not a blanket number because everybody responds very differently to caffeine. Um, I know people that take a thousand milligrams a day. And good Lord, am I just waiting back patiently for them to burn out? Cause it's going to happen. And that's, it's not like I want them to but like, they're like, dude, you, you should not be drinking like a rock star in the morning, a huge coffee, like after breakfast. And then like a bang energy drink and a rain well, later in the day. Like, sleep? yeah, that's the question. Well, I even asked Pete this question the other day and this is like definitely a personal problem. 
but I, I feel like I'm getting enough sleep and that I was having this conversation. I feel like I'm getting at least eight hours of sleep. I'm having 300 milligrams of caffeine a day and I'm still tired. Yeah. And I guess this ties into the conversation of melatonin and where he was like, well, how's your sleep? Yep. And I was like, that's a great question. Cause even though I'm taking the melatonin at night, yeah. Like how much am I taking it? When am I taking it before mm. bed and how well is my sleep cycle? Yep. So yep. I guess that ties in with that. Oh, big time. I think, the, the natural – I'm glad you asked a professional, right? Like Pete. Like Pete knows his stuff, right? So shout out to Inland Wellness Vitality. Those guys are legit. They know their stuff. But the interesting, the interesting perspective that a lot of people take is I'm tired. I'm going to take caffeine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, you can't just keep banking on that. It's like turbo boosters. Like yeah. they cause a problem eventually if you overuse them. Maybe your diet's a little bit off. Maybe your sleep's a little bit off. Maybe it's like you're stressed. Maybe you don't training well. Maybe you aren't recovering well. Like if you can, if you can give those more credit, then you tend to not need as much caffeine or you don't abuse caffeine so much. So blanketed numbers, I would say this, if you're taking well beyond 300 milligrams a day, I think you probably have a problem mm-hmm. that's going to cause more problems down the road. I, I know that's a blanketed number, but that's, that's getting up there. Yeah. Um, so just be cautious. Uh, deeper in. Yes. Why you're needing it. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. Um, I don't think it's evil. I don't think it's wrong. I think there's a great use. I think there's a really healthy way to use it. Most people don't, and they'd be way better off if they did. Exactly. So there's one. On the flip side. I gotta go coach the noon. Oh, see you, Corey. Later. I'm gonna finish this one up. Yeah. On the flip side, uh, for melatonin, it's kind of similar to that, okay? The natural bent is this melatonin's can be really healthy. Melatonin can be super helpful. It can be a great supplement to getting you to feel like you want to fall asleep. It tends to not do a great job keeping you asleep, uh, at least for most people, but it tends to help you get asleep, which for a lot of people is a problem. So I would say this, similar to how you could view caffeine, you got to ask yourself why you're taking it. Is it because you you took too much caffeine that day and now you need melatonin to fall asleep? Or is it because your diet sucks? Is it because your stress is too high? Is it because... Uh, you know, an, uh, another variable that you should probably go work on as opposed to just trying to supplement with melatonin. That would be my advice there. Uh, and then also with the factor of sleep, like, you know, are you doing everything you can to control your environment? Uh, meaning like, is your, you know, are you doing work in bed before you actually try and fall asleep? Cause that dude, that just messes with your head. Like let your bedroom be for sleep and for intimacy and, and watch if your sleep gets better. Um, try and get into a nightly routine, ha- have a rhythm, ha- find out what works for you to actually get you to check out. Uh, I've got some other episodes on podcasts where I talk about how to, you know, reset your mentality towards your evening time where that actually feels like it's the start of your next day and not the end of the current day. Uh, check that one out. It's really helpful on a topic like this. Uh, but for a healthy person, uh, who's doing a lot of great things and has a little trouble falling asleep. Yeah. Melatonin can be entirely safe. Um, are, are there, are there research articles out there that tell us some stuff about melatonin? Absolutely. At the same time, the way we're using it is fairly new, uh, where we don't have a ton of extensive research, partly because everybody that we're testing, we'd have to have them like the same lifestyle, the same size, the same amount of stress, the same schedule that like, we'd have to have so many controlled variables to really know the truth about melatonin, which is, that's really hard to do. Um, there are sleep studies on it. There's some good information. 
how much melatonin is dangerous, uh, that, you know, that, that's one that I think you need to meet with a professional to talk about. Um, can you take, you know, I, I would say this, number one, take the minimal effective dose you need to help and make sure you don't become overly dependent on it. I, I'd throw those out there. Same with caffeine. Take the minimal a dose you need to be effective uh, without becoming dependent on it. So there you go. That's a really good one. Uh, the next question we have, and this, this one was a little bit different, but that was a really good one to end with is, um, what type of training is good or bad for the elderly? And this was from a person who's talking more about like much, much, much later stages of life. We're talking, you know, late sixties, seventies, eighties, and beyond of the, you know, in the last third of your life and you're, you're definitely slowing down, you're wanting to stay independent, you're trying to stay out of the nursing home at that stage in life, okay? Uh, what type of training is good or bad? And they asked several questions, but I thought it tied in well with, with kind of that premise. So um, I'll throw a couple things out there. Number one, to anybody who's listening who might be in that category or has a loved one, you know, mom, dad, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whatever, who's in that category, um, I love when someone finally comes to the gym because they're realizing they're a little bit later in life, they're becoming empty nesters and they're like, I need to get fit to stay around for my kids and my grandkids. Number one, I love that. Uh, it happens often. It's a great reason to train. It gives you a very good purpose. It keeps things super functional and intentional. Um, at the same time, I want to throw this out there. Getting to that stage in life and already having really good training habits puts you in a lot better spot than starting when you're, you know, in your 60s, 70s, 80s. But at the same time, like nobody's too far gone. Like, like n- nobody. That, that's the position I would hold as a coach. I don't care how far you are into the years that you're going to get on this planet or how, you know, how, how sedentary your life's become or how weak you've gotten. Uh, as, as father time has stepped in on your life, nobody's too far gone. Like uh, my goal would be to do whatever you possibly can to keep training. It's just that training might look very, 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 very different. So, uh, a couple things to note, there is uh, very clear and direct research on a couple very strong correlations for, uh, the very elderly and mortality. Uh, and one that's actually super fascinating that I love because it just, it speaks to my love language of training, which is strength training is this. There's a direct correlation between leg strength and mortality. And as you think about that, before I answer it, think about why, why would leg strength mean that if you have really strong legs, you have a chance at living longer. Think about that. And the big reason is this. If you have enough leg strength to keep living independently or keep moving without less assistance, that's so much better for those later years of life. You think about it, right? When when your legs are like, I can keep moving, I can keep walking, I can keep getting up and down stairs, I can go up inclines, um, I've got the ability to get up and down off a toilet on my own, I can get up and down on the couch by myself, you could probably have a very strong shot at continuing to live longer. If you get to a point though, where you're like, I can't get up and down off the toilet. I don't have the leg strength anymore, or I can't get up and out of bed, you know, because I don't have the leg strength anymore. That, I mean, that, that starts, that starts draining the hourglass of life a lot faster. Uh, so there's a direct correlation there. There's another one too, uh, that's interesting. There's a direct correlation between foot speed and mortality. 
And that, that one's a little more, honestly, it, it should, it should kind of be a subcategory to the leg strength one. Foot spit meaning like, do you have to shuffle your feet to get around? Because in that case, the walker is probably coming and or the wheelchair is probably coming, which is a, you know, a natural progression. But if your foot has the ability to move fast enough to keep you walking independently, uh, that's a really good sign for mortality. So there you go. There's two, um, two recent articles I got to read on that were cool. Uh, if someone is, is getting to those stages of life, the absolute number one priority in training is functional strength. And I'll, I'll, that, that's one I would hold very, very firmly and probably aggressively argue other points of view um, because that, that's the real difference maker. If you think about this right, the 75-year-old man who gets super winded going up the stairs versus the 35-year-old guy who doesn't get super winded going up the stairs, it has so much more to do with strength than lungs. When the, when the leg strength and the overall body strength is super taxed by an aerobic or anaerobic activity, could be either, it really comes down to the strength was the issue. At the same time, being able to live independently Strength is a huge issue. Now, a lot of people say, well, it wasn't balance like because old, you know, old people falling is like a really big risk or old people, you know, falling in the shower or falling, getting out of the tub or falling, getting out of bed or, uh, you know, they, you know, they fell on the ice. Like, yes, absolutely. But the reason they fell almost always comes back to a strength issue. It, it, that, that's the king of it all of if the strength was strong enough that they could control their body in space that would drastically enhance their balance, which drastically enhances their coordination, which drastically enhances their agility. Like, like the trickle line just goes down when strength is there. It's the number one thing that elderly people need is strength. And I passionately, passionately would argue it that way. Um, the truth is like if, if, if an elderly person had good enough lungs to walk five miles, but their legs aren't strong enough to walk up a 50 foot hill. See how that creates a problem? Like they're better off if their leg strength can keep going, they just might need to stop to take a little bit of a breath once in a while. That's okay. But if their leg strength isn't there, then they're stuck. So that, that's, that's a big one. Um, I think when you think about training for elderly, uh, if, I if I was just to kind of leave it with one clear thought, it's this, put so much emphasis on strength. And strength might look like literally controlling their own body weight onto a parallel object and being able to get back up with minimal assistance so that they can translate that basically a squat into being able to get up and down off the toilet by themselves. That's a freaking win and that's great. And strength training is what will allow them to continue with that. So there you go. Hope that was super helpful. Uh, again, I think it, it, as many things in the fitness world tend to get put in a spotlight like where this is good or this is bad or this is wrong or this is evil. I think it's a lot healthier, especially with, with things in the fitness world. Just look at them as, okay, what, what, what's some, what's some times where this might be helpful? What's some things to think about where this might be harmful? Like they aren't good or bad. They're neutral. We just got to know how to use them and when to use them and why to use them. Uh, so I hope you found this helpful. Hope it was a practical episode. Uh, look forward to next week. We'll jam on some more of these topics. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Peace.